following is a discussion with Kurt Paulson. Kurt is a professor of urban planning at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It was an honor to speak with Kurt and glean his insights as to how we can combat placelessness in the United States, making our towns and cities and neighborhoods more inspired. This is the Kathleen Sessions podcast. To support this show, please visit the sponsors in the description and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thank you. What made you choose urban planning as a career choice? And I guess, you know, then why did you choose to go on to teach it? Well, it's kind of a circuitous route, right? I mean, when I was an undergraduate, I was studying um, economics and political science and urban studies in uh, Chicago at Northwestern University. And I guess, I guess I just always loved cities and the diversity and the density and the excitement of cities. And so the, the truth is, I did not know what urban planning was, even when I started my PhD in urban planning, because I did my... Uh, my first graduate degrees were in economics and public policy. And then I showed up uh, to graduate school thinking I wanted to study public policy and my advisor convinced me that I was actually an urban planner. So it's kind of a funny story because I started a PhD in something that I knew nothing about. What do you think makes a city great? Oh, so how much time do we have, right? So I like to explain to students that, you know, for the last 6,000 years, human beings have been congregating in cities. And in some ways, it's, it's humankind's greatest intervention or in, innovation. And what makes a city great is that idea of uh, density and diversity and exchange, right? So the earliest cities are places where uh, people are no longer constrained by the need just to eke out uh, a subsistence existence. And so they can congregate in cities, and that leads to the flowering of, of knowledge, of uh, I ideas. So what makes a city great today would be this idea of it's, it's a way for lots of different people, lots of different ideas, lots of different economic concepts to kind of layer together and interact in unique and creative ways. So, and again, I know that when people think of cities, they wanna be kind of romantic about the ideal of design, but a, a city is really a labor market agglomeration, right? It's a way for all of us to come together to be more productive than we would be on our own. And so you see this idea of specialization of labor right, that you have these uh, networks and institutions of not just schools and churches and hospitals and all the kind of civic institutional structure, but just a wide range of people and economic activities. There's got to be more to it than that. There's got to be more than just the jobs, right, and just, right. The, and just the commerce. Like, so, you know, as we look across yeah, cities across the United States, you know, a lot of them will have, like, robust economies, and some of them obviously do not. But right. what differentiates the ones if let, let's say the playing field is evil, or is, e is evil? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just is even in terms of like economics and job opportunities sure. and all of that. 
why do some cities feel amazing as a human, as a human being right. and other cities, not so much? Right. So that, that's a, that's a good question and a good way to put it, which is, you know, it's the kind of economic agglomeration that makes a city life possible, but uh, without things like arts and culture and music and restaurants and food and entertainment, cities would be would be pretty sterile places. So if you think about the great cities, right? Uh, London, Paris, New York, it's that they provide a real uh, dynamism of activity, of economic activity, but then that makes possible great cultural uh, institutions, whether it be arts or museums. And what also makes cities truly viable, I think, is the idea that then someone who doesn't quite fit in, right? Whatever that means. We, we like to say that cities are a great place for people to be anonymous and try new things, try on different identities, uh, be creative, explore new concepts in arts or, or music, right? And so, um, you know, I, I tend to think more in terms of the kind of social and civic infrastructure and less of the physical design, but of course, physical design has to matter. Right, and it's not just that by layering a bunch of people with open space and infrastructure together that you create these opportunities for interaction, but it's something about uh, the beauty of the, the the buildings, the landscapes that inspire people uh, and provide meaning. So the classic example in New York would be, it's not just the idea of Central Park or the uh, beautiful buildings in Southern Manhattan. It's how they interact with each other right. that really creates the the excitement. So Jane Jacobs, a great urbanist, uh, used to talk about the kind of the wonder and uh, excitement of turning a corner and discovering new people and, and new buildings. Where does urban planning then, right, circling back to you know, the, the PhD you fell into, uh, where does urban planning and as an extension of that, I guess, land use uh, come into play as not only we're looking at um, our existing great cities, but also smaller towns that are starting to become cities that are growing. Like how, how, mm -hmm. how should we look at that? I guess, I guess define urban planning. <laughs> well, you know, I'll be somewhat uh, expansive in my definition, right? Which is that urban planning is really collective action for the kind of common good of a of a physical space. So it's both the physical infrastructure, uh, buildings, streets, parks, landscapes, but it's also the kind of social and civic infrastructure. So uh, you know, again, humans have been building cities for thousands of years, so they've always evidenced something like urban planning, which is the, the design of, of streets, of public buildings. In medieval and ancient cities, it'd be a wall for kind of public safety and security. Um, and that always represented a degree of social control, either by like the king or the elites. So modern urban planning is complex in a democracy because we don't think that there should be a uh, a king or a master planner who's in charge of everything. So even though we think of these big ideas about arranging of streets and buildings to interact, and it's that design element, uh, 
urban planning is messy, right? Because it's <laughs> politics, it's people, it's me wanting to control what my neighbor can do on her land. Um, and so the, the role of urban planning is supposed to be this idea of kind of democratically, collectively, we kind of decide on the future we want, and then we find ways to implement it. But, you know, the, the, the high ideals of urban planning are about justice and equity and beauty. But the everyday reality is, at, at some level, it's a coercive power of the collective to as much tell people what they can do or what they can't do. So, you know, I talked earlier about that kind of surprise engagement as people interact and, and discover diverse views of the world. A lot of people think we can't actually design that, right? Because in some ways that's accidental, that's organic. But we do know from 100 years of American urban history that we can design against it, mm -hmm. right? And we've made lots of mistakes. So whether it's the kind of um, suburban sprawl or the urban highways, right? All sorts of ways that you can actually design against that kind of social interaction, that kind of equity and that beauty. So I guess that's kind of an incomplete answer because it's very ambiguous. And when I when I talk to my students about this question, right, they want kind of clear, kind of almost top-down sort of rules of design and uh, layout. And, and there's some of that, but I always emphasize the fact that in a democratic society, it's kind of bottom-up participatory, which is why it's fun, <laughs> but it's also why it's extremely messy, right? You you have, I mean, you've been before a plan commission that I was on, and you might have 20 people show up, you might have 100 people show up, and everyone's got a different opinion, everyone's got a different voice. And I think about how much time we spend on a small parcel of land, just deciding what should or shouldn't go there, and then multiply that by millions in a large city like uh, Shanghai or Tokyo or, or New York. So I don't know if that answers your question. Well, I mean, I think we're getting there. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that there's there's so many moving parts and it is messy. Democracy is messy. Um, there's We're so lucky to have so many inputs, right? But I guess um, I want to come back in a moment to like that suburban experience and like small town USA in a moment. But I'm going to like the the example that I'm going to kind of put before you in relation to what you just said is I just was spent about a week in Los Angeles okay. and I had I've been there several times and to your point about New York and all these places where you can like round the corner and be like surprised there's not a lot of rounding the corner walking in LA, it's hard to be surprised unless you're, because you're getting in your car to go everywhere. Yep. I mean, the, you know, um, it's, it's so, it really struck me this time because in previous visits, I had spent time in other areas of LA that were maybe closer to the ocean, which had a little bit more walkability to it. You could walk to the ocean, you could walk to your grocery store and some great restaurants, but unless you're right there in LA, uh -huh. um, it is, it's 
um, there are so few sidewalks. It's so, there's so little connectivity. And when there are sidewalks, the sidewalks rarely go anywhere. So every, even the most meaning, meaning, uh, menial thing that you might have to do in the day, you have to get in your car and go. And to it, what I really felt this last time, more than I've ever felt it before when I was there was just like how lonely that is in a way, because you, there aren't, those opportunities for the chance engagements walking down the street as much, you know, nearly as much. Um, there's, it's very hard to get to know your neighbors because your neighbors are all, you know, they might be right next to you, but there's no sidewalk connecting the two of you. And there's probably a gate, you know, or in some neighborhoods. Right. right? Um, so, you know, I don't know if you can speak to that a little bit and like, yeah. Yeah, so I, I teach an undergraduate class that gets into the all the history and theory and, and you can make you can make a, a great intellectual and, and uh educational hay just by contrasting New York and Los Angeles. And my students always think I'm too pro New York and too anti Los Angeles. And so I'll first start by defending Los Angeles, which is that's your experience primarily in a downtown and a tourist areas. Uh but people in most LA neighborhoods would say that there is a real sense of place and vitality in the neighborhoods, right? But the the, the key example you touched on in terms of walkability and just the design relative to the automobile really reflects the historical truth and evolution, which is that cities in their urban form and pattern tend to represent the transportation technology that was dominant at the time of their founding. Right, so if we move even further east into Europe, the Europeans criticize most American cities as being too auto-dependent, too focused on um, wide roads and, and buildings set back from the street. And the, the real answer is, well, those great cities evolved in the medieval period when it was horse-drawn carriages and New York evolved when it's also horse-drawn transportation and uh, the railroad. Right, so for 6,000 years, cities, again, it's not just a labor market agglomeration, it's a function of transportation. You gotta move goods and people. And they were designed at a human scale because transportation was either walking or horses, right? And so you definitely see that when you go to Los Angeles, but Los Angeles or Houston, to take another example, illustrates, I would say one of the greatest challenges and problems of American urban planning, which is that we really, you know, beginning in the 30s, but then particularly in the post-war period, we redesigned the American city to accommodate the car, right? So it's, it's uh, we decided, I think it's a mistake, it's wrong, right? To cede control of the streets to the engineers. <laughs> Right, And the idea of a street for an engineer is to maximize the throughput of vehicle traffic at design speeds, right? And that's a really a horrible way to design cities, right? We know now it is connected with sprawl, it's connected with traffic, pollution, and, you know, most people don't think about this because it's a slow motion crisis, but lots of death, 40 to 50,000 people die every year, just from vehicle uh, crashes. So yeah, when I go to Los Angeles, I uh, drive everywhere, right? And it does feel certain, 
sense of urbanism that's a lot different than like when you go to New York or DC, you, you, you take public transit and you walk everywhere. So, but, um, you know, I don't want to be too harsh on LA because, you know, in 1920s, when the automobile was just taking root, LA really didn't exist. So it's mostly a new city in the last 70 years. Well, I think one of the reasons it's important to talk about it, right, and to talk about these differences and to think about it, because like you said, a lot of times Mm -hmm. we don't even think about these things. But then as we're going to make decisions in our local communities about how we're going to grow, where we're going to grow, what's this going to look like, and we want these this participation coming from multiple angles, we want the engineers to weigh in, we want, you know, the urban planners to weigh in, we want the citizens to weigh in. In. We want business to weigh in. You know, I, I, you know, I think that the more that all of us understand this, the more that all of us understand what makes that difference in New York versus LA. I mean, you probably, you, you sleep this, you breathe this, you, you know what I mean? Like you've made have yeah. a curse of knowledge, right? <laughs> because you've been in it for so long, but like for, for, you know, um, for most people, I think, um, I, I, I think I, when I look at myself, I didn't understand that difference. I didn't understand that difference as it related to land use. And I therefore also didn't know that there was anything you could do about it. And then once you start to recognize the difference and how the differences and, 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 um, and and how those things play out and what decisions go into this, you f- start to feel like, wow, things don't have to look the way they always look. Um, I'll, I'm going to leave it there because I want to come back to suburban, you know, how this affects well, like suburbia and all of that. Right. And, and the issue of land use is land use and transportation are two sides of the same coin. Right. In fact, we sometimes joke that transportation policy is just land use policy with wheels. Right. And so the dominant form of the American city is a single family detached house and an automobile to drive everywhere. And that's not something that just happened. It was literally designed and written into law and into policy. And we've so built the city that way over the last 70 years that it creates this interlocking set of expectations which means whenever somebody proposes a, a more dense land use that doesn't have parking, right? In any city, people people don't know what to do with that. But ultimately, I, and I know this is where you wanted to go with the conversation, is, you know, as cities grow, I like to say that cities either grow out, meaning spread out, sprawl, or they grow up in, in both senses of the word. So if you want a more sustainable city, that has to mean fewer cars. If you want a better designed and safer city, that has to mean fewer cars. But Americans love their cars, right? And we've built most of our cities so that you can't get from point A to point B in any time frame that's reasonable without a privately owned automobile. And so I like to, to, to say that, you know, the future American city cannot have the privately owned automobile, which, by the way, 90% of the time is sitting empty and needs parking space, right? 
cannot that cannot be the dominant form of mobility. So if you want a kind of a shorthand, we like to say that the American city has made driving cheap and housing expensive. But we really need to move the other direction if we want both a more equitable and environmentally sustainable sort of city. Yes. And when you think of, we, I think it's a good time to maybe switch gears to like, well, to the sprawl that you mentioned in suburbia. And this, I, I think, again, when I think of most of us, and I put myself in this camp for decades, mm-hmm. I didn't really think about as new neighborhoods would pop out, up, pop up on the outskirts of town. You know, oh, that looks like a nice neighborhood. That seems like a nice neighborhood. But what were most of those neighborhoods? They were subdivisions of houses only. And you think, you know, again, when I wasn't aware of this stuff, I was like, well, what's the harm in that, right? But then when you really start to understand that you have an option, there's an alternative option that instead of just building these housing islands that are, you know, spread out from the town, which now if it's all houses, anytime you need a gallon of milk, anytime you need your prescription, your vet, your childcare, anything, what are you doing? You're getting in the car. And I, I, again, I'm saying this because like, I just don't think we give it a ton of thought and I'm trying to bring up the awareness of it because, you know, we can, I'm hoping as citizens or future developers or, you know, we can start to like have an influence on this, Um, ask for this, decide we only want to move into neighborhoods that have accommodations there that make it easy that I can walk to the grocery store, to the coffee shop, walk my child down to, to, to childcare. Um, It doesn't have to look at like subdivision after subdivision after subdivision, which feels flat. You're not, to your point early on in the conversation, but rounding the bend and being like, whoa, what's there? Like, you know, being kind of excited about like something new, you really, when it's just house after house after house, and all those houses look and feel the same, you know, as well, it it doesn't, um, you know, it's just something to be aware of, because it can be different. And I guess that's the point I'm trying to get across. It can be different, you know, um, yeah. But that that form of sprawl is so deeply entrenched in our law, in our culture, in our finance, right? If if we if we think of this whole thing as a system, it's so embedded within so many elements of the system that again, as you've seen, anytime you try something new or different, uh you get a lot of pushback, right? So there's one of the historical reasons why we have that. I mean, there's a bunch of historical reasons, right? But one of which is as cities kept growing and adding population, uh, people thought they were overcrowded. And then zoning starts to arise in the 1920s. And zoning says, no, you can only build one house on one lot. And then there's a minimum lot size. And so the further away you get from the central city, the, the people who are in charge of land use, which is mostly the citizens there already, they don't want uh, mixed use. They don't want high density of housing, right? And so, you know, if you think about any city or region that's growing, if you're going to add a bunch of people, which the forecasts are there, right? So in our city here of Madison, the, the whole region, we might add 100,000 people in the next 30, 20 years. 
and maybe more as we get climate refugees from southern climates, right? Well, that means a lot new housing. So where are you going to put it? And if you say every existing neighborhood that's already developed, that already has the infrastructure, oh, we're full. We can't take any more housing. The zoning does not allow it. Then by definition, it has to be pushed to the furthest outreaches of the of the city. And if it's if the zoning requires that the density of housing is low, there's no financially viable model of public transportation that can get people from there to jobs, right? So technology alone, even if we have a, I like to say, if we have a fleet of robot-driven, uh, fully electric cars that shuttle us around, that still doesn't solve the issue that unless you can build up in established neighborhoods, right? As a city adds more people, it's going to grow further and further out into the countryside. That's just kind of the kind of rules of urban land economics. And so again, as you said, it's this tension because we have all sorts of creative ways of doing something different. But so much of our planning and zoning system embeds the right of current homeowners in a neighborhood to kind of veto anything new that's around them. I Well, I absolutely agree with you in terms of um, the ability to go up higher density. The other, the other beauty of that, right, the beauty of it that we will barely be able to even scratch the surface on today, but the beauty of going up is you're not covering the earth and all the land with concrete and buildings and smothering the soil. And, you know, which there's, that's a whole nother thing that we will barely get to touch on today. And, but there and is a per capita greenhouse gas emissions go down. Right. So there is a beauty to going up. I would like to just offer, though, and and, and I, yes, it is deeply embedded in so many. Um, this this idea of sprawling out is so deeply embedded. But I think how you start to unpack it and become um, not embedded is by actually driving awareness of like, hey, things could be different, and let's start talking about it, and let's start getting excited about it, and let's start pointing to different models throughout the country that where they're doing things that are different, and let's let's like see what that's about because it. I, I I don't think any of these things that are so deeply embedded are going to change unless people, unless the base, unless the citizenry is understands this. And I guess that's what I'm trying to do today with this podcast is take it from theoretical and, and sure. all of this and try to bring it down to earth of like what, you know, just, just start to plant the seeds to shake, rattle this cage a little bit here. So, um, so on the one hand, yes, going up is like a super exciting option that I think most, um, a lot of areas aren't considering fast enough based on our needs. But even if we're going to go out, even if we're going to go out, you can go out in a different way. A so if way. you're going to do a subdivision that's 10 miles from city center, right? That subdivision doesn't need to be an island of houses. That plan that could be planned by the developer in such a way where you are within that housing development, you're offering services and, and mixed use, not mixed use in that way that um, feels can feel crappy in terms uh -huh. of just overbuild the retail and let 
you know, whoever feel, fill it and it just doesn't feel good. I'm talking about the services that can actually serve the community so that to your point, that even though they might have to be driving ultimately to get to a job, they're not having to get in their car for the 20 small trips a day to do sure. the basic needs. And they have all those opportunities then to like bump into their neighbors. And so, and the other thing I'll say is obviously things are shifting with careers and jobs and work from home and everything as well. And obviously that that only affects a certain portion of the population. We're always going to have jobs that are going to be like centralized that people need to drive to. But I, I think you can slice this both ways. You can go up and when you go out, you can you can approach it in a much better way. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of good examples of those better planned neighborhoods. Sometimes we call them complete neighborhoods, right? So it's not just housing and it's not just one form of housing. It's not just a large lot detached house, but a variety of housing styles and types, including, you know, maybe a, a, a granny flat or a garage unit, um, uh, twins, townhouses, condos, and then the idea of a highly designed amenity space for walking, recreation, shopping. I'll, I'll give an example. I live in a neighborhood uh, that was one of the first of what we call the movement of new urbanism designed by uh, Dwayne Plater Zybeck in Miami, right? If, you're, if your listeners are not familiar with them, they can just look up new urbanism. And my neighborhood is called Middleton Hills and it's smaller houses closer together and you can walk to schools, you can walk to the grocery store. Um, there's a variety of housing styles and types. And then there's other neighborhoods we've planned around in the area that are, are similar, right? Which is, again, even if you're going to build out on a greenfield, uh, provide a variety of spaces, a variety of types, right? Because not all households want the kind of large lot single family where you drive everywhere. In fact, that's less than 25% of all households. So it involves thinking about multi-generational housing and live work units and places for people to have maybe a small business or kind of uh, kind of co-op or co-working sort of spaces, because again, as you said, we're 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 beginning to get a little bit worried that the work from home phenomenon, accelerated by the pandemic and Zoom and and technology, might mean that actually our central cities, which are dominated by kind of an office type employment cluster, if those start emptying out and people move further away because they can live wherever they want, that might actually put more pressure on the suburban form of development to just keep doing the same thing we've always done. Right, right. Um, I think the beauty of it, and as you know, I'm involved with one of these developments and working my way through the process. But I think the additional beauty, it comes back to what you were saying early on too, that what makes a city a very urban place, one of the things that makes it great is the diversity. And this mm -hmm. type of housing development where you've just, you're looking at it completely different, you know, small footprints, know your neighbor, front porches, multiple price points, multiple sizes, it then organically leads to more diversity because you get people at every age and stage of life and um they that's can right. and it's just like gosh that's like where the richness is like that's where like so okay um so one thing i just want to talk on small towns for a moment because actually kind of what's led me down this entire path of like 
growing personal awareness of it and wanting to change something was, you know, I'm from a small town, so I feel like I'm okay to say this. So um, I'm, I'm from a, yeah, I'm from a small town. And I'd say, you know, in the last 30 years, a lot has changed with small towns in terms of the main street. We all know these phenomenons, you know, while a big box comes in, I'm not going to mm-hmm. say any names. And then the main street sort of dies and that sort of thing. But recently, it was about two years ago, I was on a road trip to Michigan, actually went to the near the Detroit area. So I was driving from Wisconsin to Michigan. And in the process of some of the routes we were taking, we were rolling through, well, obviously along the highway, past a lot of like uh, exits, but also we were moving through, driving through a fair amount of small towns. And what just struck me and like, just, ugh, was that you know, as you approach each small town, that that the roads that lead into that town, right? You you can rattle off the five or six different uh, five, six, ten, the strip mall chain chain aspects, the the, yep. the the gas station that doubles as the grocery store and maybe the hangout yep. place for the small town. And and um, so I guess, I don't know if there's something you want to talk about that in terms of, I guess I, I after that road trip, I'm like, it does, why is it like this? And, and does it have to be like this? And maybe you're going to like, tell me, well, it does because it's messy and, and commerce and all of that. But, but I don't know if you can talk about that small town experience yeah. and like the, the kind of the soul that seems to be leaving, like the, we're, we're, it feels like a soullessness is starting to happen in, in so many towns and growing urban areas and even some of our big, beautiful cities. Yeah. I mean, I ha- I have the same impression. Certainly, when you drive through small town Wisconsin or Iowa, right? We could show you pictures of a place, and you're like, "This looks like every other place." Unfortunately, there's no really kind of clear, good answer as to why. In some ways, uh, the economic vitality in a lot of small towns has disappeared. Right. And as you see the economic vitality disappearing, there's a lot of incentive to try to grab onto whatever you can. So if a big box retail comes to town, you think that's good. We need that for our tax base and for jobs. And, and you know, as you said, you drive through a lot of small towns in Wisconsin and uh, the main street is decimated, but there's a very vibrant, you know, giant commercial retail center just on the edge of town. Part of it is also that the development industry for a lot of retail has become national. And national firms tend to have a cookie cutter approach. So I'm thinking of a particular convenience store that's very famous in Wisconsin, <laughs> right? And and oftentimes that is, as you said, the only grocery store or one of the economic drivers in a town, but they really have like three or four models of stores. And they want it to all look the same. So wherever you're traveling, you think it's the same thing or or kind of the rise of chain restaurants. So unfortunately, I wish I had a clear answer as to what to do, right? Because a lot of small towns, as your tax base is eroding, if someone comes in and wants to build something, you're kind of happy that they're there. Regardless. Regardless. So it might be a chain restaurant or a chain uh, grocery store or convenience store. Uh, 
And it's just part of the larger trend in, in the United States that this kind of small scale, uh, local uh, kind of retail serving is really disappearing. Um, you're right, it, it tends to take on a soulless quality. But then we can also think of a lot of small downtowns that have been able to redevelop their main street with a kind of combination of local facing businesses and arts and educational activities and, and housing. So there's there's a lot of hope, but it, it it does feel like there's just kind of this massive push of uh, capital and design to be very uniform. And, and I'll say, you know, state departments of transportation aren't very helpful in this regard, right? Because they want to run the state highway right through the middle of a small town. And then the people in that small town want to limit the speed to 25 miles an hour because you don't want cars whizzing and trucks whizzing through your, your main street. So then what do state departments of transportation do? They build a bypass around the small town and suck even more of the life out of it. So part of what my message is to people doing urban planning is we can we can kind of stop doing stupid. Uh, that doesn't guarantee that we'll rebound. But, um, you know, if I was a planner in a small town, the idea of a state highway that bypasses our small town and then we put up strip commercial retail or big box retail, boy, that that just doesn't make sense anymore. But all the economic incentives are supporting that type of development. Well, and I'd say not just if you're a planner in a small town, but if you live in a small town. And this sure. is where I'm just going to keep coming back to this because we have a voice and we can use it. We can go to our um, you know, our plan commission meetings and our city council meetings, and we can start to weigh in on this stuff. But again, we, it's like we need the language. We need the understanding. Like we need to have thought about it in maybe in a repositioned sort of way that never occurred to us before to be able to come forward and maybe make that change. And to think about the barriers. So, you know, if you want to open a small restaurant, maybe serving um, ethnic food, right? So one of the things that revitalizes a lot of small towns, we have to be honest, is immigrants moving from other countries, right? Because if you're facing population decline and an aging housing stock and an aging population, you need to reinvigorate your population with immigration, and that produces social conflict. But if you want to think about a restaurant, right, as a small business that people like, it's just harder to get upfront capital to start a new restaurant if you're not already a chain restaurant that can access millions of dollars in loans. So this may mean not just only design and planning issues, but being willing to put up some money to support local businesses. And that's risky, right? Because if you're a small town, your city finances are strained and stretched, right? And you have limited dollars for fixing the roads and keeping up the library. Uh, in addition to kind of activities to support small business. How, what do you think the impact of all of this, like this change over the last 30 years, both for small towns, but the change, you know, changes we're seeing with just the sprawl and everything. What do you think the impact on, on humans, like on, you know, like what, what's the impact on the human experience? Right. I think we see it in the data. And you mentioned this earlier, right? The rise of uh, 
of loneliness, the rise in uh, what are sometimes called deaths of despair, right? We have, for the first time in American history, we have a declining uh, life expectancy, right? You see this in uh, increased uh, incidences of substance abuse and, and mental health challenges, oftentimes without the support of social services and infrastructure that helps people cope. Uh, we see increasing political polarization. And I will say, as someone who teaches young folks, um, I think you see an increasing sense of kind of a lack of hope that things are likely to get better and that the uh, folks in charge are going to change how things work and fix things. So particularly around issues of, of racial justice or climate change, I would say that um, young people today that I teach, they're far more aware of this and, and self-aware than we were ever in our age. So you give them great props and credit for that, but they don't, they want the world to change, but they don't think it's going to fast enough to make much of a difference. Um, so that's part of what we see. And I forget what the other part of your question was. Just the impact on humanity. Impact. And I think that was a beautiful answer, actually. Well, and I mean, you know, America has been through times of kind of great social turmoil and technological change before, right? So the, the 1870s and 1880s were certainly that time because you had massive amounts of immigration and migration, changing family structure and a switch from an agricultural to a kind of an industrial and an urban base. So we've been through this before, but, um, you know, the impact, boy, sometimes it's hard to say. Right. And then if I try to project forward, you know, we could imagine a positive future that emerges from all of this social turmoil and technological change. <laughs> but it's just as easy to imagine a, a more kind of almost apocalyptic or dystopian sort of uh, way that these trends kind of spin out. So it's not just in when you were talking about um rural areas and small towns. It's not just the decline of population and businesses, but we're seeing um, you know, a decline in people participating and number of people to participate in civic groups, in churches, in kind of community groups. So that kind of social infrastructure is also uh, really a challenge. And then I think you just layer on top <laughs> social media and political polarization and it's almost as if we've lost the ability to talk to each other and kind of come together and, and solve collective problems. Um, you know, you can think of any land use conflict, even in a small town, which quickly becomes uh, polarized and almost national level ideological camps that kind of go at each other. So... Can you um, talk about the importance of the public realm and what you mean by that? <laughs> what you what you mean by public realm? Sure. And um, yeah, yeah. So 
In urban planning, we often talk about that planning focuses mostly on the design of the public realm. And that means that most land use is actually private. It's privately owned and privately developed. But how it interfaces with other buildings is itself part of the public realm. And so that's not just density, but it's also design. But the public realm is everything from streets to sidewalks to kind of clusters of what we might call institutional activity that people enjoy, whether that's city hall, libraries, uh, police and fire stations, schools, but also institutional uses that are mostly private, that have that kind of community design element. So schools, churches, uh, hospitals, all of these institutions of civic life. The public realm is not just the buildings, it's the space between the buildings and how people interact. So if we think of the cities that we like and the places we like, it's not just the building itself or the sidewalk, it's how they interact, it's how they interface, it's places for people to sit down and have lunch, it's public parks, uh, museums, right? You know, at, at some level, it's um, maybe I'm waxing too poetical, but it's, you know, it's all the stuff of life that you do outside of your house. It's how you interface with other people. And I always encourage people to think of the street as an element of the public realm. And in some ways, getting back to my earlier comments, we have yielded the streets to traffic. But the purpose of streets is not just to move cars. It's to move people and it's to, to facilitate interaction. It's to shape buildings. So we need to reclaim the streets to be uh, part of the public realm, right? In any downtown, it's bike parking, it's street trees, it's street furniture, it's even parking spaces so that you can go to the library or the, the grocery store. And all of that is designed by some collective public entity. But good design is hard to, it's hard to categorize, but you know it when you see it. And again, it's usually a public interactive process and it's somewhat messy and complicated and expensive. But I think we all have been in places that are just really bad design for the public realm and just how those places feel sterile or um, kind of unwelcoming. Um, I mean, I could go on forever about that, but. No, that's, um, it, you were mentioning that maybe you were being too poetic. I think we have not, I think we, I think the conversation overall and the actions overall related to this do not have enough poetry, do right. not have enough um, imagination, do not have enough optimism. And so I say, bring it on because maybe a little poetry will get us excited about what's possible and get us excited to be individually thinking about it, individually thinking about well, how can I participate? And then that indiv those individual thoughts and actions help bring together the entire community. So I, I think we're missing right. poetry actually, and maybe I'm just a romantic, but you know, what, what do you, what do, um, what do you wish citizens knew? Oof. Wow. That's a, that's a big question. Well, I, I would say 
you know, I see this both with my students, but also with citizens I interact with, is I wish they knew how stuff gets built and why it gets built. Because it's easy to see something that's gone up and say, why did they do that that way, that place? Or why don't we have something that we want, right? And it's, it's again, people tend to assume that it's either just uh, there's some government master planner, you know, usually an old white guy in their imagination sitting down with a blank slate of paper, just drawing how it should be, right? And that's not how it happens. Or they think uh, there's just this uh, nefarious cabal of property developers, and they just kind of force things through the process and build whatever they want. And that's not true either, right? Everything that gets built and everything that doesn't get built is this kind of hybrid public-private process of landowners, developers, builders, architects, engineers, right? You, you're a developer, so you, you did it right, which is you pulled together a good quality team of architects, landscape architects, land planners, right? You intersect with public agencies, not just one, but multiple agencies, right? Water quality agencies, transportation agencies, land use planning, Right, it's a give and a take. It's a dialogue. Citizens show up to the public meeting. There's codes and ordinances and laws on the books. It's this again messy, complicated process. I wish citizens had a better understanding of how it works, so that they can inject themselves helpfully at the right stages. Oftentimes, you know, as a plan commissioner, the only time this you hear from the citizens is when they show up to tell you that they don't like this proposal. Well, sometimes I want to say, by the time you see it, it might actually be too late. So part of it is citizens can get involved in the planning process, that kind of upfront planning process. But that's got to be this kind of, again, kind of community dialogue in good faith about what we want. Because oftentimes, you know, individual homeowners will show up even to a plan, and they'll say, well, I want to keep things the way they are because I like it the way they are, right? So there's this kind of status quo bias because the people who vote, the people who show up to meetings, they already own their homes. They already like their neighborhoods, right? They don't want more traffic. They don't necessarily want more development. Um, so we've got to find a way to kind of get over that kind of lock every neighborhood in amber or bury our head in the sand and say, what is it that we want? And where do we want it? Express that through a plan, right? And then when a developer comes and says, okay, I'll build that, that it becomes a, a partnership, not an antagonistic relationship. But again, that's easier said than done because, you know, particularly in planning, we don't have one planning agency for the United States. We have 80,000 different units of local government. Every one of them is different. Every one of them has volunteers who serve on zoning boards and plan commissions and architectural review boards and, you know, community development authorities. And so um, that didn't really answer your question, though, because then I have to answer the question of if that's what I wish citizens knew, <laughs> and I'm an urban planning professor, then how come we don't have those materials easily available to people in these kind of short 
YouTube video explainer videos to help them understand? Well, I think conversations like this are a way to get it started, right? So it's just like you start the conversation and you po- you look take the topics and you look at them from multiple angles. I mean, even today, listening to you again, would I, I love who you are in the world and I was so excited to talk to you. <laughs> um, and but even today, I feel like I've learned from you. Like you've you know, triggered new things, which, um, again, is helpful part of the education process and the getting people excited process. And like you said, it doesn't have to be that you're showing up at your city meeting, at your plan commission meeting or your common council meeting or however it works in your town, just to be the um, voice of of opposition or just to complain about something. It's just like really try to have a full understanding and educate yourself slowly over time about the processes and try to break out, I would say, of these scripts that get us nowhere, these scripts that every developer is a big bad developer just out to get, you know, profit, you know, and and cities just there to slow things down or to, you know, those scripts don't work and they are not accurate. I know firsthand I'm on the development side, but I'm also trying to really put like, I'm a citizen too. And I, how, how do I want things to play out? And what are all the things that have to, um, you know, be thought through and who do you have to work with and, and all of that good stuff. But um, I can say like, and not in defense of developers, but it's like developers, I'm just going to take a step back for a second and be like, they're putting their, their lives on the line, their finances on the line. It's a massive risk that they're taking Uh and, and it's hard to get projects to actually pencil out or a lot of projects to pencil out, which means actually, you know, st- not go in the red actually makes sense financially. So there's so many tensions here that we're not even going to get a chance to scratch on today because I would have liked to have dove more into that. I would have liked to have dove more into the competing interests within the cities, within the municipalities sure. too. You've got the engineers and you've got, you know, the visionaries and you've got, you know, so there's a lot, there's the water people who have a different take on how water resources and water can flow versus the engineers with the wider roads, right? So there's lots of competing tensions that I would love to, I would love to have around two or three or four or five with you at sure. some point. And we can do a deep dive into some of this stuff in terms of even the backdrop of financing um, and funding. And if people start to understand how that works, it makes, it makes their ability to participate in a meaningful way um, a lot easier. And the other thing that the critical thing that Two critical things, affordability, affordable housing, which, yep. um, again, we'll save it for another time because it's such an important thing that I really want to deep dive, but also the environmental impact of sure. all of this stuff, which we just scratched on. But there's so yep. much here. Just scratch. Oh, well, and to follow up on what you said is, you know, planners don't actually build anything, right? It's private developers. And so, you know. You're you're a private developer. A lot of people are. It's hard to take a risk and put millions of dollars of capital if you don't think that people are going to, you know, buy your houses or rent your commercial space. So, you know, a, a developer really is only going to build what they think the market can bear, right? Why would you put your capital at risk to build something you know, to build housing where nobody wants to live or to build retail that cannot lease up, right? So in some ways, we want to reward innovative, creative design and development, right? On the other hand, 
developers are pretty risk averse. Well, right. right. And because, you know, all of those things, anytime we're looking at improving the quality of building, improving, actually paying attention to design so that we don't just end up with all of these buildings, I'll use multifamily as an example, all these multifamily buildings that look just exactly the same. I know it's a hot topic right now. So I, that's why I brought that one up. But I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it, they, I, in defense of that, I mean, it's like to get a project to pencil out, let's just yep. do things the way they've always been done because we know that that's going to work. Um, so again, there's, there's, I think there's more to this and more to the potential sure. solutions than, um, than we have time to discuss here. And I think, you know, some cities are getting very creative and I think some investors are getting very creative and, and investors are starting, I don't want to say just starting, but I mean, sure. um, to care more about like, gosh, to look around at, you know, um, our city, our town to feel how even those private buildings, like you said, become part of the public realm. And, and I think investors are starting to, um, those that are investing in, um, real estate are starting to, you know, want to be part of projects that are care more about the environment and care more about quality and timelessness and not just a building that's going to turn into blight in five years, you know, Sure. but, um, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful you are in the world, number one. Thank you. <laughs> I am. And I'm grateful that you gave me the time today. Oh, it was it's fun. Okay. So promise me I might Sure, be we can to, do round I, two. I, okay. <laughs> we don't have to book it today. We'll give you we'll we'll give you some I time mean, to get through the holidays. You, you keep bringing me on, your listeners will just fall right to sleep. So. <laughs> no. This is exciting stuff. I, I hope that it's exciting to them anyway. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kurt. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you much. Thank you a lot. It was good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Professor Kurt Paulson. To support this podcast, please visit our sponsors in the description and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. And now I will leave you with a quote from author Woody Tash. Patience is beautiful. Restraint and care are beautiful. Peace is beautiful. Thank you so very much for listening. Have an amazing day, my friends.